Our scripture reading this morning will be from Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 9. Verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Well, if you haven't already, take your Bibles and open them to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. This morning we have the privilege of looking more into the life-giving truth that God has for his people in Ephesians chapter 6. I love the glimpse that this section of Scripture gives us of the New Testament church. As you read through Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6, uh, it seems that Paul was confident that uh, the church included husbands and wives and children and parents and slaves and masters all being gathered together um, as they worshiped uh, God together. Uh, Paul's writing this with the knowledge that it was going to be read uh, when all those different um, stratas of society would be gathered together as the church. And uh, in this regard, Highlands Baptist Church is quite similar to the New Testament church. Uh, This morning, we have husbands and fathers and children and parents and business owners and bosses and employees all gathered together here in this place uh, to give attention to what God would have for us to know about himself and how he would have us live as Christians in this age. And before we jump into the specific instructions in Ephesians 6, I want to try to prepare our hearts to be more receptive to the truth in this passage. Ephesians 6 is very practical. Ephesians 5 and 6, very practical. And that means what Paul is doing is he's, he's applying gospel doctrine into the various spheres of our lives. And this means that we're reading pretty uh, kind of uh, abrupt commands. This is when you read in chapter 5. I mean, the command is husbands, love. Uh, you get a command, wives, submit. You get a command in, in chapter 6, children, obey. It's, it's very kind of abrupt and and uh, matter of fact. And because of our sinful nature, sometimes when we're given scriptural commands like this, we feel like we're, we're, we're being placed under a weight or a burden. We might become antagonistic to that kind of matter of fact command. But we need to remember that when properly understood, God's commands are not burdensome. Uh, the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 5 that the love of God is that we keep his commands. And then he says, and God's commands are not burdensome. In fact, Jesus described living in relationship with him as as a place of rest for our souls. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Here's the reason why. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So whatever we might be tempted to think or feel when we come up to very practical sections of Scripture like Ephesians 5 and 6, 
I want us to be confident that God intends for these words to be life-giving for his people, to be a path of joy. And we also need to remember, I think this will help, help us to remember, that the God who writes those very matter-of-fact commands in Ephesians 5 and 6, husbands love, wives submit, children obey, is the same God who blessed us with, in Christ with every spiritual blessing. If we go back to Ephesians 1. It's the same God who, in Ephesians 1, he, he chose us in him so that we should be holy and blameless. This is the same God in Ephesians 2 who is so rich in mercy and great love that he poured out his love and mercy to us even while we were still sinners. It's, that's the same God who's now writing, who's giving to his people the instruction in Ephesians 5 and 6 that's very practical. And so, whatever our internal inclination might be, if we might feel resistant or argumentative to statements in Scripture that are very clear applications, I want us to remember we've either forgotten or we've begun to doubt God's good purposes and motives for his people. We also need to remember that Ephesians is a letter, and so it was ordinarily read from start to finish with God's people. And it would have been understood in its entirety in that way. So, I want to preface, as we look at this very practical section in Ephesians, with what Paul wrote before that. And this will be very brief, but just to make sure we, we understand how we should approach this. Obedience to instructions that are found in Ephesians 5 and 6, they can only be obeyed when we have God's mighty power at work within us. In Ephesians chapter 3, and you can glance back there if you'd like, Paul prays for his readers. He's writing and then he pauses in the middle of that and he prays for his readers that they would know and understand and appreciate and experience the power of God at work in their lives. Why is he praying like that? Because it's only by the power of God that Christians can live out the gospel in these spheres of our lives, in our relationships. It's only by God's power. We also need to remember that these exhortations in Ephesians 5 and 6, they flow out of us as, being, as, redeemed, as the redeemed people of God. Um, living, walking is the word that Paul uses, walking very carefully. And these instructions are directly dependent on God's people being dependent on God's Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, being submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5, verse 21. All of that, those, those phrases beforehand that Paul has written are, are what these instructions then flow out of. Spirit-filled Christians submitting with one another in reverence to Christ, dependent upon the power of God to live out these gospel doctrines as husbands and wives, as parents, as children as employers and employees. Our text for today in Ephesians 6 can be broken into two sections, verses 1 through 9. Uh, the first section deals with family relationships. That's between parents and children, specifically children and fathers. And the second section deals with professional relationships. So you can think of it in those two categories. Family relationships, uh, the passage previous in, in Ephesians 5 talked about marriage relationships. Now we're talking about family relationships, children and parents, and then professional relationships. So we'll start there uh, with that family, Christ-centered submission in family relationships. Paul begins by giving instruction to children, and it's very simple and clear. God calls children to live out spirit-filled submission in the home by obeying and honoring their parents. Just like the previous instructions that uh, he gave to husbands and wives, Paul anchors children's obedience in the Lord. You see in chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. That qualification of in the Lord is, uh, serves a couple of, of ways to help us in the home. It means children are protected from having to obey a parental command to sin. Uh, children are commanded to obey parents in the Lord, and it also means that obedience to mom and dad is part of a child's relationship to the Lord. 
It's not just obedience to humans. It's part of a child's response of worship to Christ. Obedience goes deeper and further than just a relationship between mom and dad and child. Paul is highlighting here, just as parents, as husbands and wives, love and, and serve one another in the Lord, so do children obey parents in the Lord. Obeying in the Lord means that obedience to parents is done as uh, part of a child's worship and relationship to Jesus Christ. Obedience and honor are distinct, but also interconnected. Uh, think of it this way. O- obeying parents applies particularly to children who would be young enough to be under their parents' care and instruction and authority in the home. Um, we might also say that children in that phase of life, one of the primary ways that they honor their parents is by obeying mom and dad. But honoring parents is different, too, in that uh, obeying parents is something that we can often outgrow. Uh, you're an adult. You're in your own home. Uh, you're not calling up mom and dad if you can, you know, hey, I'm going to be out a little bit later tonight. Are you okay with that? That would be weird if, if as an adult in your own home with your own family, you're still calling back to mom and dad saying, hey, I'm going to be out till 1030 tonight instead of 10. Are you okay with this? That would be odd. We're not talking about that kind of weird, weird dynamic. Honoring is something we never outgrow. And we honor parents in how we treat them and how we care for them in adulthood and how we speak to them and how we speak about them to others. But even as adults, we still have the sense that we want to show that we reverence Christ by how we honor and respect our parents. And there's all sorts of complexity that can work, them, work itself out and there are dynamics of relationships between adult children and parents. It's beyond the scope of this message, but it's clear that Paul is writing to, uh, to the household and saying, children, it is God's will for you to obey them and to honor them. And even as we grow into adulthood, we're not exempt from the spirit of honoring our parents and showing that we are worshipers of Jesus. The clarity of this command is tied to an equally clear reason. You see, you see how we, Paul writes it? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's very matter of fact. Um, God teaches us that children are to obey their parents because that's the right thing to do. It's right. So kids, if you're in here, if, if you're thinking, uh, if your mom and dad are, only can get you to obey because they bribe you with something, if, if that's how you kind of relate to your parents, kids, like I'll do this if you give me a Snickers bar. I'll do this if you let me. If that's kind of how you think your relationship is with your parents, that's not how God intended it to be. God says this, kids, obey mom and dad. Why? Because it's right. And whatever objection, kids, you might have to that, you need to understand that you'd be objecting with the king and creator of the universe. You really have no legal grounds. You have, you have no justification to object. There's no way that you can say, well, I think I have a better, better, uh, better way. And this promise is given with this, co- with, uh, this command is given with the promise that Paul is quoting from Exodus chapter 20 when he says, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that your Lord your God is giving you. That's how it's quoted in Exodus 20. Paul here is changing that a little bit when he changes the promise, isn't to a specific inheritance of a land like it was to ancient Israel. But the promise is this general promise of long life. And I think we need to understand this in a proverbial way. Uh, this is probably a simple illustration, but um, a child is going to likely live longer when they obey their parents' command not to run into the busy street. Um, so in that sense, in a proverbial way, yes, you're going uh, to live long and prosper, so to speak, as you listen and obey your parents' children. So all the children in here, okay, I know that sometimes you might think that this is what, you know, the adults sit through sermons and you're just kind of along for the ride. 
Um, this, is, uh, this is a particular passage that is aimed at you. I want you children to understand that in Ephesians 6, God is writing to you. Uh, this would have really broken the social norms of the day. Uh, children were um, uh, kind of not to be, to be um, seen but not heard kind of, a, kind of an idea, and, and the fathers were the ones that were the, the authoritarian disciplinarians in the, in the home, and as children were in social structures, it was just the adults. And here Paul is writing specific instructions to children, which, by the way, he's been, Paul's been circumventing those social norms all through this section. I mean, Paul writes specifically to wives, not just husbands. That would have broken social norms as well. Now he does it again, writing to children, breaking social norms. Later on, he's going to write to slaves. Catastrophic breaking of social norms there again. So children, I want you to listen up to what God has for you in Ephesians 6. The Creator God is speaking directly to you, telling you what His will is for you. God's will for you as a child is to obey your parents. That is God's will for you. In our Western context of fierce independence, you as a kid might think that obeying parents is preferred but not necessary. You know, maybe you think that, hey, um, my argumentative spirit with my parents is kind of like my independent spirit, you know, stepping out. And isn't that independent spirit and free thinking going to serve me well in adulthood? So, you know, after all, that's just what's just happening here. I'm not really, it's not a big deal. If that's your thinking, you're wrong. Because God has clearly said here, his will for you as a child is obey and honor. Obey and honor. So however you collide with that as a child, you need to submit yourselves under God's mighty hand for you in that regard. Obey your parents in the Lord. Listen to God. God is offering you a path of joy. He's offering you his best as a child. Honor and obey. As I meditated on this command for children to obey, I found myself reflecting on the example of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I know it's a big word, but this garden that Jesus was known to go to. And in Matthew chapter 26, we read of Jesus going into this garden, and he was, he was deeply in sorrow. His soul was deeply troubled, and he's praying to God the Father. And he's asking the Father for deliverance from the suffering and anguish that he's going to experience when he takes on himself the payment for the sins of the world. And yet Jesus finishes his prayers, he repeats this prayer to the Father, but he finishes his prayer every time, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is Jesus obeying. So children, listen up. Jesus is not asking anything of you that he has not already done and in greater measure. Jesus walked that path. Jesus is He's more than an example, though, okay? So it's not just you can look at Jesus as the perfect um, example of, of obeying um, God the Father in that sense. And by the way, there, there's perfect examples of Jesus as a child obeying parents also. But he's more than an example, kids. Jesus is more than an example. He is your substitute. For every time, kids, that you disobey mom and dad, that you dishonor mom and dad, and you are underneath the burden of that sin, Jesus is your substitute who paid the penalty for that sin so that you could have right relationship with God in Christ. And so children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Because of Jesus and because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, then kids, if you're a child of God, Jesus isn't just calling you to obey your parents. He is giving you his power to obey them by his spirit. God is not just calling you to obey. God is giving you his spirit to lead you to obey them in his strength. 
And kids, God is not just calling you to obedience, but he's given you his son to be your advocate for when you disobey and dishonor. Well, Paul continues, and he gives instruction to fathers. As uh, in verse um, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It was fitting for Paul to give specific instructions to fathers because they would have been the ones in society that would have held the primary responsibility of the education of children, particularly for sons. It's probably what's happening here that Paul is circumventing the social norms again by not writing just to fathers about sons, but writing to fathers about their children, which would have been included sons and daughters. So this would have been a signal about how the gospel transforms how fathers are to relate in the home, not just giving primary instruction to uh, sons, uh, but giving that nurturing instruction and discipline to sons and daughters. The culturally accepted demeanor in the Greco-Roman era for fathers would have been um, heavy-handed, authoritarian, and stringent in their discipline. And Paul's instruction transformed that, gave us a new way of parenthood. And there's a negative side and a positive side to his instruction. The negative side is a prohibition from provoking children to anger. And the positive side is a command to nurture children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So this negative side, this prohibition against provoking children, um, this doesn't mean that, that parents are not allowed to disagree with the children. It doesn't mean that they're not allowed, that parents are pre- uh, prevented from um, setting down uh, expectations and, and making clear what's expected in the home and the kids don't like it and they're upset. What this is talking about is parents, fathers particularly, weighing carefully their response to their children so that they're not just giving reactionary flare-ups and emotional outbursts or giving insults or trying to get their way with their kids through sarcasm or nagging them or demeaning them or, or using demeaning comments or some sort of inappropriate teasing to, to, to elicit from this, their child some sort of emotional response for feeling better as a parent because you're not pleased with your kid and so you want them to feel displeased. It's preventing fathers from placing unreasonable demands upon children or it's forbidding parents from forgetting that we are raising children. And there will be childlikeness, childishness in children. And God wants for, for Christian fathers to respond to children in uniquely Christian ways. And the uniquely Christian way is raising children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So I confess as I was studying this passage, I had to examine my own heart and confess where I fall short of this. Fathers, do we have a habit of emotional flare-ups at our children that do nothing other than provoke them? It's not instruction. I I heard it described this way. As parents, there's different ways that we can talk to our kids, right? One is a monologue. That's where you're talking and, you know, one person's talking and and they're listening. Uh, One is a dialogue where two people are talking. But a lot of times parenting can be a soliloquy where you're talking and no one's listening. (laughs) Fathers... Do we provoke our children? Do we exasperate them and crush their spirits because we are just venting emotional outrage, exasperation? Do we insult our children as, an, as a tactic, to demeaning them to get them to do what we would like them to do? Do we exasperate them through our demeanor and demands? Fathers, this is not the way of the gospel. And I'd encourage us as fathers to consider how God, our Heavenly Father, responds and relates with us. How easily God the Father could, could play the card of, you just are silly and foolish and I'm exasperated with your, with your attitude again. 
And yet the, the holy creator God, what does he do? He extends to us mercy and his rich love to us again and again. And so Christian fathers, what we are simply doing is we are just simply taking the love of our heavenly father that we have received in our sinful brokenness and we're passing it on to our children in the same way. Paul commands fathers to nurture their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Notice again, this command is anchored with in the Lord. Uh, so this is not just moralism. Christian fatherhood it has to be more than moralism. Christian fatherhood is, is talking about raising up children with this discipline, this correction, this admonition, this, this instruction, this idea of uh, I'm teaching you how to flourish in life, but it's all anchored in the Lord. So in many ways, this is like the ground zero of Christian education. A father's understanding that it is their role by God to be the ones who teach their children in the ways of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, you can't explain gospel truths to a 10-month-old. And so if you're thinking, you know, what does that mean? I'm supposed to raise this 10-month-old or 10-week-old in in the ways of Jesus. Sure, you can't have that interactive dialogue, reasoning and logic with a 10-month-old or a 10-week-old, but you can treat that that child with the reverence and respect of an image-bearer of God, someone who you trust will one day be in the Lord. And you can certainly have conversations with a 10-year-old or an 18-year-old in that same way. So what this, what this means then, dads, there's lots of different applications, and we're not going to chase into the weeds of all the various styles of parenting that this might produce. Here's one exhortation that I think gets at the principle of Ephesians 6. In order for us as fathers to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, it means we must know the Lord. And I'm talking about more than just a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It begins there, yes. But dads, one of the best things you can do as a father is to grow in your knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ. Be a man who presses hard into knowing Christ. Let the gospel of Jesus Christ transform the spheres of your life so that you can fulfill this biblical command of living out the gospel in your home in this way that you are raising up your children in the discipline and nurture, instruction of the Lord. That nurture idea is the same idea that Paul wrote earlier about husbands cherishing their wives. It's the same word. Fathers, to cherish their children, to bring them up in that same way. Dads, something to think about. What can you do this week to know Christ better so that you might nurture your children in the ways of the Lord? If you were to obey this command this week, what behavior, what action, what attitude would be required of you to fulfill this in some way in the strength of God so that you would be a father who knows Christ. Well, Paul moves from family relationships onto what we'll call professional relationships in verse 5 when he speaks to bondservants. So Christ-centered submission not just in family relationships, but now we see Christ-centered submission in professional relationships. Bondservants. Um, I need to give just some brief context of, the Greco, uh, of, the, of what Greco-Roman slavery was to help our understanding of this passage be most fruitful. I think it's necessary because when we hear the word slavery, we're probably thinking of Western New World slavery, and there's some differences between the two, some similarities, uh, but some differences as well. And let me just point out from the beginning, either way, slavery is wrong. Okay, so this isn't an excuse of slavery here. And Paul is not upholding slavery in any way either. I think I'll I'll show that here in in a few minutes. But some of the differences between what Paul is writing to in Greco-Roman slavery, in Greco-Roman slavery, it was not racial at all. 
Western New World slavery is racial, was racial. So in Greco-Roman world, it wasn't. Um, there were slaves of every race imaginable um, in that age. And that was largely due to slaves were often prisoners of war. And as a nation would go through and conquer, they would have prisoners of war, and they would take those prisoners of war, and they would be into, into slavery. Um, another difference was that many slaves were able to save up money. They were given money as part of their slave work, and they were able to save it up, and most of them, had, it was likely for them to be emancipated, um, often by age 30 or thereabouts. Somewhere in their 30s was often um, a possibility for them to do that. Now, there was often a relationship that continued between the slave and the master, even so, um, once they were emancipated, uh, but there was that opportunity. And many slaves in the Greco-Roman world, it wasn't just um, hard, demeaning agricultural labor that they were involved in. Some, yes, but not all of them. Many slaves in the Greco-Roman age would have had high rank in intellect and education and tra specialized training to do their work, whether it was an accountant, whether it was as a property manager, a teacher, a doctor, a writer. Those would have been um, areas in the society that have been fulfilled by slave labor. So definitely differences between Greco-Roman slavery and New World Western slavery. But still similarities in that slavery is still slavery. It still involved the coercive ownership of people as property. And that is wrong. It is sinful. It is disregarding the sense of unique dignity and honor of image bearers before God. And Roman slaves had little or no legal existence. They were often disempowered and they were easily exploited. So this is the context that Paul is writing to in this Greco-Roman age. And again, it would have confounded the social norms for a words to be written specifically to this sector of people in a combined group of people when there would have been masters involved as well, masters present also. But Paul writes directly to them in verse 5, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. And then there's one verse to masters. I read that aloud again so we could get the feel of the length of instruction that Paul is giving bondservants. He's not just kind of giving them a little hat tip, like, hey, I know you're there, so hey, shout out to you. But he's taking time, he's developing this instruction that will be life-giving to slaves that were, that was Christian slaves that were living the gospel out in that age. So Paul tells slaves to obey their earthly masters with fear and trembling. This doesn't mean that he's asking them to cower in fear and abject terror of them. Paul wants their obedience to be done with sincerity, with a genuineness of their hearts. See verse 5, do this with a sincere heart as you would Christ. There's the key phrase there that, that Paul wants for these slaves to understand, as you would with Christ. So in verse 5, we learn that Paul wants slaves to serve their human masters as if they were serving Jesus Christ himself. Now, this gets deeper than just behavior. What this does, what Paul is getting at for the slaves is getting to the core of their identity. Imagine, you're a slave in Greco-Roman world. You're a Christian. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven. You're a child of the king. But in the earthly sphere, you're a slave. And your master might be boorish, he might be harsh, might be domineering and demeaning, might be asking you of you things that are wrong, and trying to figure out how do you interact, how do you live out the gospel in that relationship. And here's what Paul says. He gets at the slave's identity. 
You are not actually a slave of a human master. You are ultimately a slave of Jesus Christ. That's where Paul's driving this. The issue in life, even for slaves, wasn't circumstantial or societal. The issue is in how or in what we perceive our identity. Paul wants Roman slaves to perceive themselves not primarily as human slaves with a human master, but ultimately children of God who are slaves of Jesus Christ. And you can see how he unfolds this instruction in verses 5, 6, and 7 with the words, as. It prefaces, it, it begins each of these phrases for clarification. In verse 5, it says, as you would Christ. In verse 6, it's, you're going to serve as bondservants of Christ. He keeps returning to this theme. In verse 7, he says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord. I mean, Paul keeps repeating this phrase over and over again, this idea. Human servants, human slaves, do it as to the Lord, as to Christ, as bondservants of Christ. He keeps repeating this idea. And so when a person, when, when a slave realizes that they are slaves of Christ, they're going to be motivated in a much deeper way. Slaves shouldn't just give empty motions or heartless service, which they would have been known to be doing, only serving when the master's looking because they despise this master. They, they resent the fact that they're in this relationship of ownership, whatever circumstance required it. Instead, it means slaves can serve even, even bad masters with meaning and purpose as long as they realize they aren't primarily serving an earthly master, but serving the Lord Jesus Christ. This truth examines our motives. So a question we might have then is, whom do we seek to please? Just generally in life, whom do we seek to please? What Paul tells slaves is directly applicable in our day in a sense of the modern-day employer and employee relationship. And I know there's big differences, Right? And I'm thankful for those differences, but I think we can apply it in, the, in that relationship. Or uh, for, for those that are, that are um, in school, you could apply it to the student-teacher relationship. I know sometimes you students feel like you're the slaves of your teacher. They, they sign you a homework, and you must go home and do it. You just got to keep doing it week after, day after day, right? So how would we apply it to this? Well, our jobs and our role in society does not determine our worth. It didn't for the slaves in Greco-Roman world. A slave was able to serve Jesus Christ just as much as Paul was. A slave was able to serve Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians 6, just as much as you name the, the person in society. In fact, the slave can serve Jesus Christ as much as a master, because that's the point Paul makes down in verse 9, that he says to masters, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Paul reminds masters, listen, you serve me just like slaves serve me. There's no difference. And so then, as Christians, we are to live in and to and for Christ in all we do. This means that our value and identity are not derived from our circumstances, whether slave or free, but from Christ, when all of our actions are lived in this conscious awareness that Jesus is our ultimate master. Then even the most mundane parts, the most menial parts of our life are full of service to the Lord. So this principle goes further than just the golden rule, like you want to treat others as you want to be treated. It goes deeper than that in that Paul is telling us to treat others as we would treat Christ. Just imagine how that would radically transform the relationships in our life. If we were treating one another, not just as we want to be treated, but if we were treating one another as if we were serving Christ. Paul gives a motivation for slaves to consider in verse 8. Here's the, here's, you, you can live out this obedience, um, slaves, to this command by this means, verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. This really is amazing. 
Paul is reminding slaves that their access to the riches of God's reward are unhindered, are undiminished by their rank in society. God is not going to give more to a master than he will to a slave. That's that's not how God works. God is generous. He's lavish with his generosity to all. And so he encourages bondservants, uh, slaves, that it's immaterial in the sight of God, whether you're a bondservant or free, because your access to the riches of God's reward are unhindered or undiminished in Jesus Christ. So then he goes to masters in verse 9. He gives them, in contrast to all the verses on bondservants and and slaves, one verse in verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. Which simply means, everything I wrote to the slaves is true for you too. Do your actions in society. Serve in society as part of your Greco-Roman world. Do it all. Treat your slaves in the same way that I have commanded slaves to be treating you. Do the same to them. But he gives one specific prohibition, and then he gives them an encouragement. Stop your threatening. You can read extra-biblical literature of that Greek day. I mean, we would read translations of that, right? Um, but you can find historical accounts, uh, instructions given to slave masters, and they were harsh instructions, dreadful instructions. And there was the sense of treating slaves dreadfully so that they, there wouldn't be this kind of uprising and revolt and overthrow the economy and society. But Paul writes a different way. Stop your threatening. Christian masters are not to treat other people with threats and coercion. Here's why. Verse 9, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Again, position and station in society are not what define us, nor should it be what motivates us. It means this, that there is never a, a, a time or a place in our life where it is okay for there to be an abuse of power. Never, never. That applies to fathers, that applies to husbands, that applies to business owners. There's never a place in society where it is right uh, for, uh, according to God's word, for there to be an abuse of power. Authority is always meant to be given in in a way of service. And so, uh, for cross-reference to this, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, uh, Paul describes the relationship in the church through the gospel of Jesus Christ so radically a different that he describes it this way. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. How is that possible, Paul? Well, in this sense, in the spiritual sense, in the eyes of God, all are one in Christ Jesus. So whatever sense of righteousness you might feel in race or in ethnicity or in accomplishments or in education or in, or in wealth, all of that disappears with the gospel. Paul was captured by this mentality himself. He regularly called himself a slave, a servant, a bondservant of Jesus. In Romans chapter 1, he describes himself this way, Paul, a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul also saw himself as a slave to other Christians. This isn't just a generic term for Paul. He understood this through and through. Not just a slave to Jesus Christ, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants. He identified himself to the Christian church as he's the slave of these other Christians. And Jesus did this perfectly. He took on himself the form of a slave in his incarnation. In Philippians 2, it says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And remember, it was Jesus who did the slavish work of washing the disciples' feet. So what Paul is giving instructions here to masters is 
something that Jesus has already done, that Jesus modeled perfectly. And in verse 9, Paul gives masters a prohibition not to threaten. Slaves were not to be abused or coerced or threatened. In fact, you can read more about this dynamic if you uh, read the New Testament book of uh, Philemon, where Paul's writing to a, a master, a slave master with a runaway slave and the, re- and the results of how the gospel radically transforms that relationship so that he's not to receive the slave back just as a slave, but receive them back as a, as a brother in Christ. Much different. So the result is this. Paul's not upholding slavery by writing specific instructions to bond servants or writing specific instructions to masters. He's not upholding slavery. What he's in effect doing is overthrowing it from within. Paul's instruction to slaves and masters, it's immaterial to Paul's concern whether someone is a slave or a master. What's important is that that Christians live spirit-led, Christ-centered submission in whatever station or rank they find themselves. Husbands or wives or fathers or children or slaves or bondservants or masters. It's immaterial to Paul. What's important is that the gospel be lived out in spirit-led, Christ-centered submission. So Paul concludes his instruction to masters with this idea that Jesus is impartial. This is healthy for a church to remember. As we look at one another, as we relate to one another, as we see different skill levels, different education levels, different income levels, different work, uh, different, different sectors in, in, in the work field, professionally, as we look at the differences that we have in family upbringing or background or access to privilege or all of those differences that are represented in the church of God, it's important that we understand as we look at one another that Jesus does not look at us with any of those distinctives. What Jesus sees is sinners redeemed by his blood, forgiven by his atoning work, recipients of his electing grace, of his forever and always covenant-keeping love. This is the gospel that changes us from the inside out. It's wonderful truth. This is the gospel. It's wonderful truth that the invitation to know God is not, is not placed on, is not dependent on our achievements or our our education, or our accomplishments, or our our good works. It has nothing to do with that. That our access to God is through faith in Jesus Christ, turning away from love of sin and embracing love of a Savior from sin and knowing Him as our Lord, as our Master. That's Christianity. This is the gospel promise that anyone who embraces Lord as Savior will enjoy. So then, The truth that Paul keeps applying to the relationships of life, whether husband or wife, whether child or parent, whether slave or master, is this. We know one another in the Lord. How would God have your relationships changed by the gospel this week? How? Children, do you need to confess disobedience and dishonor to your parents as sin? Stop excusing it as just personality, as just free-spirited thinking, as just you know what's best, but understanding that in the sight of God, it is wrong. Fathers, do you have a pattern of provoking your children? There is forgiveness in Christ for us. And there is strength from him to obey the path of Ephesians 6. That we would begin new habits of Christian nurturing and discipleship in the Lord. Employees, what would it look like if you showed up for your job this week as if you were serving Jesus Christ? 
knowing that your access to his eternal reward is undiminished by your role. Bosses, employers, managers, how would your relationship with your employees be changed if you treated them as you would treat Jesus Christ? If you lived out in your sphere of influence and power the way Jesus used his influence and power to serve others. There's many ways that we could continue to apply this. But is there one way that the Lord might bring to your mind some response in your heart of worship, of adoration, of confession that would help us as a church family fulfill our mission better, which is displaying the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ? I'm going to ask us to bow, give some silent reflection, and ask the music team to come forward. I'm going to give us just a few moments of quiet reflection to pray and to respond to the Lord in our hearts. And then I'll close us with prayer and then we will respond together by singing our final hymn. Our gracious Father, we thank you for giving to us these life-giving words. Thank you for working for our joy through these commands for explaining to us what it looks like for the gospel to transform our marriages and our families and our workplaces. Lord, forgive us where we have fallen short of this good way of the gospel. Thank you for the forgiveness that is ours in Christ, that we are not under the penalty of our sin. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of your spirit to lead us and to empower us that we might display the gospel in these relationships in these ways. So we pray for strength to live in obedience to these commands this week. That the children of Highlands Baptist Church would take to heart your call upon them to obey and honor their parents. That they would do it as an act of worship, of living out the gospel. We as parents, as fathers, would obey. Lord, may we as fathers be the first to confess our sins when we fall short of this, that we might show our children the glory of Christ, our great forgiver. Lord, in our workplace, transform us. May the way we work in our day-to-day lives display your glory to more and more people around us, that we as a church would be salt and light, a city set on a hill, that you would use us as ambassadors of the good news of Christ, that you would use us to draw many to know you as Savior. We pray these things for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.